welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. Welcome back. Welcome in if you're new to this this thing. Um, this week is quite a cool one because we've got a, a bona fide rock dude on the show. That, that that does bring me an awful lot of pleasure to say that because this band in particular, Green Lung, is probably, you know, it, I would say one of my most played artists of last year. Like, I just did not stop listening to them when uh, Woodland Wright's their debut album came out. It's, Green Lung are a fantastic band. I've spoken about them before with, with some people on this show and other shows like Infectious Groove Podcast. And uh, Scott, the guitar player, is a freaking genius. Oh boy. You know, they, they, balance, they balance that really fantastic ethos of people want to be entertained and enjoy themselves within within music so it's not pretentious it's just straight down the line uh rock and rock and roll rock really and i i what what you're gonna get from this conversation is a very sensible level-headed man who is a great songwriter who is like who does a pretty good job at unpicking what it is to be in this band what it's about and also what it is about to him for, for him writing these songs I suggest if you haven't listened to them, it would be advantage, advantageous for you to perhaps go and you know press pause. I don't mind. I don't mind you pausing me. It's fine. You know, just as long as you don't touch the pause button. You know, too often um, it does stuff to me. Uh, go and listen to them, Green Green Lung. And if you can only listen to one song, might I suggest uh, Woodland Rights? I mean, it's it's one of like the first songs on, on the album. But give it a listen. Give, you know, it'll plug plug you into what I'm talking about. So, gosh, yes, it's going to be a good one. You're going to enjoy it. The what was the other thing? Uh, the other thing is that uh, Pearl was throwing up last night. So I've taken the day off the day off work uh, because I've had no sleep. And and frankly, who cares? A day off in this mayhem that we're going through is a weird one because you can't really do anything. So I might go on a nice long country walk. Doesn't that sound nice, hey? Get in the car, go on a nice long country walk with the dogs. Oh, man. It's beautiful. But yes, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the last few weeks of conversations. I've had a, we've had a few. If you haven't had the chance to uh, listen... Got Bob Harris, the, that wonderful episode that that we listened to, which is which is awesome. Um, funnily enough, I think Bob's a bit of a fan of Green Lung these days. I I I think I I don't know chatted to him about him like via email or something. Anyway, he he's a bit of a rocker as well. You can't you can't you can't deny it. It doesn't really matter whether a genre is a, a, a something that turns you off. For example, I don't know, maybe you're not into jazz. But you hear John Coltrane for the first time, you go, I don't like jazz, but this is great. I think Green Lung is definitely one of those bands. I don't really like, uh, I don't really like heavy duty kind of like, I don't know what you, what you'd call it, but some, some rock turns me off. Okay. When it's screaming murder and an insane heaviness, forget it. But there's a sonic energy to some heavy rock. That there, there's a layer of sonic pleasure in a riff that is undeniably 
fantastic. And that's what Green Lung have. And I'm, I'm circling back again to my, for my love for this band because I've been to see them a lot. And um, they're worth your time. I'm not just saying that for the sake of it. They are really worth your time. If you have any... I don't know, something to scratch, like a, you want to kind of get a new band in your life and you you want something a bit heavier, it's going to blow the cobwebs away. This band is for you. And they're recording a new album soon, I think in the next few days, if not if not now. Um, and we talk about that as well. So I'm pretty excited about this one, to be perfectly honest, as you can tell. But I'll just circle back one more time to uh, maybe a podcast, maybe a podcast or two that you'd like to. I... I really, really, really enjoyed talking to Sean Conway, the last episode. You know, I, I I think I was a bit sweary. I don't know what happened there. I think at the beginning of the episode, I got a bit sweary. I don't particularly like doing it, but there you go. But if you if you really want something different, then Sean Conway's your man. Adventurer, just to start with, he swam from Land's End to John O'Groats. took him four and a half months. It was unbelievable. That story alone will blow your socks off. And uh, yeah, it's completely opposite to this week's episode. So if, if that's your thing, do it, man. Pivot. Pivot. Anyway, there's always something that I forget to say. But, you know, if there is something that you want to tell me, you can find me on Twitter at Limehouse Pod. And yeah, we're on Instagram. And uh, that's just the Limehouse Pod on Instagram. It's that simple. Good Lord. Isn't life simple when you want it to be? Anyway, look after yourselves and I will see you, uh, crikey, Sunday. Now, I don't know who's going to be on the show on Sunday. There's quite a few options, so we'll just see. It'll just be a surprise. You know, you can you can roll with the punches. Anyway, look after yourselves and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Life is just tired, tired and COVIDy. <laughs> just one long know? energy suck until oh, you God, until it's... you die, and then even then the universe is sucking matter from your coffin. Oh, mate, it's such a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> uh, oh God, you sound great. How come you sound? You've you've got a microphone set up. That's lovely. Yeah, my um my wife's a voice actress, so we've got this kind of fairly professional voice capturing system get the trucking hell out of here yeah. your wife's a voice actress well I mean, you're she's developing a... huh go on sorry you're saying you're developing deodorant and yeah you're rocking out in a in a rocking band <laughs> like <laughs> what a way to live yeah right yeah she's yeah, um, hashtag hashtag winning. he's gonna be recording for fireman sam on thursday no way, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, she's uh-huh. done um, Fireman Sam, Thomas the Tank Engine, and all she needs now is Postman Pat to complete the triumvirate of iconic uh, cartoon characters. Well, I mean, she's not thing. been Postman Pat or Fireman Sam. Well, not yet. I mean, no, you know, we'll, yet. Wait. We'll, we'll, we'll wait for Pat to have the operation, but I mean, I'm sure it's just around the corner, <laughs> right? You know? But I'd, I'd love to know what Pat would be like in drag. I reckon he'd be actually quite sexy because he's or not necessarily sexy, but it's quite convincing because he's got that that big nose, and I think that's always quite complimentary with makeup. Yeah, maybe. I, I'd hope he'd be like one of those like super aggressive 
RuPaul style ones. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I fucking imagine Postman Pat lip syncing to like just Britney save his Spears life or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like sachet, sachet, sachet your post away. <laughs> yeah. for, 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 not second class, first class. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, how how are you? How are you anyway, Scott? I mean, it's it, I haven't seen you in a long, yeah, long, it's been long, long time. Um, Last time I saw you was actually in Manchester, and I don't think we even saw each other because it was a, a hectic gig up at um, I can't remember the name of the venue now. It was in February, but um, and uh, you were wailing away on the old axe, <laughs> you know, melt, melt, melting faces, and uh, and then I, I think I did merch for about an hour afterwards. The queue of people like rabidly after your after your t-shirts and what have you and I was like Tom was doing it on his own and I was like fuck this is ridiculous so I just I just jumped in it was actually so much fun it was really? a bit... we should make you yeah. our merch guy I wasn't aware of this actually I wasn't even aware you were there oh mate this is what I'm talking about dude like you know it was such a hectic gig there were so many people and I don't know you were, I don't know carting your gear off or what have you but um, I think I saw John for about two seconds, and that that I do you know what I I didn't have COVID or anything, but I had such a bad cold that night, right. and I just remember being down the front trying to drink through it and listening to you guys, watching Wiseman smash smash the drums in his sort of I say smash, you know, place very pr- precise drum, <laughs> you know, yeah, and. Um, yeah, it was a hell of a gig, man. But that that was the last gig I saw. Actually, that's the last gig I ever went to. Um, I think that was the last was gig we played. In... Must oh, have been. Fuck. Yeah. Jeez, that feels like years. That doesn't feel like a couple of months ago. That feels like years ago, doesn't it? Mental. Have you noticed your whole perspective of time has just been completely warped? I can't. Yeah. I have. I can't really tell. Like, if something happened in January this year or in like two thousand and five, it just feels like your life has two chapters there was before the virus and then there's just the covid time you know totally it it's it's just it's really hard to put it into context like i don't know no one's ever been no one's, we haven't been through no no living person can remember a time like this you know the last time was what 1919 or 1920 or something and it's like it's just unbelievable yeah. and i know it's unbelievable but the, the thing is it's just depressing it's getting to a point now where it's like there were like shoots of like you know green green uh, shoots emerging here and there, and now and now it just seems like fuck you know bloody it's never gonna happen because all I'm like yeah I, when do you think they all when I mean I don't know like because I know that you guys uh, Green Lung like that, that that was your last gig in February what have you been doing since have you been like trying to get those green shoots going yourselves like in terms of like trying to get stuff out to your fan base. Yeah, I mean, we we really struggled because our our rehearsal studios were they closed down completely. Most places opened again in in June, uh, May June, and I think even earlier. If you're you know if you if you're a professional musician, if you make money from music, you could go back in yeah as early as May, which we could have done. But our our rehearsal studio was just really weird and cagey. They still haven't reopened. Uh, obviously now going into lockdown too, but they never really reopened. All of our gear was stored there and they they just made it fairly difficult to go and get our gear. So we eventually managed to get in to, you know, get some of our provisions and start rehearsing elsewhere. But it was only about a month ago, 
um, yeah, about a month ago now that we moved into a new studio that we kind of have access to whenever. Um, yeah. And actually started being an active band again. So it wasn't even, that was very frustrating because we, we have an album to record very soon. And we were kind of mm. sitting there with plenty to do. I mean, this is such valuable writing time for any band, you know? Yeah, you can't play gigs, but often gigs are not an impediment, but it's it's this, you know, you spend so much time focusing on working and playing these these gigs that you, you don't get a chance to be just, you know, musically creative for the fun of it. And it feels like this would have been a really good opportunity to do that. And we didn't really get to experience that until the last month, um, which is obviously very unfortunate. Yeah. But um, no, it's yeah. So it's, it's, it's an all... interesting point. When COVID hit, what was the creative experience like for you? Did you pick your guitar up immediately, or did it take a couple of weeks? Like, no, it was a pretty immediate thing. Um, I I was kind of feeling quite burnt out with with writing music and and that kind of thing. And what I really enjoyed is I kind of just went back to approaching guitar as you do when you're like a. 14 year old when you've got all the time in the world you know and so I was just just learning all these solos that things that I'd, I'd wanted to learn but I'd never really either I either I didn't have the chops to do it when I was 14 years old or I just for whatever reason didn't and so I went back and revisited all these iconic solos and did I set myself a bit of a challenge because I knew that if I didn't kind of gamify it in a way I would lose impact lose lose um lose interest in it and just drink even more heavily than I was at the beginning of lockdown. So I kind of set myself a little goal where I'd learn, well, I'd I'd publish (laughs) one new solo every day. And that was quite fun. So I started with like uh, the Beat It solo from by Eddie Van Halen and the Michael Jackson song. And yeah, it's, it's, if you want to listen to them, it's um, if you go to at lockdown shred on, on Instagram, they'll all be there. Yeah, it was such a, it was such a fun time. And it was a real fun time not only like learning these solos but going and and recording them and trying to make them you know fairly similar tonally to to the originals and it was just such a great oh wow so you went deep man you went really deep so you went yeah i mean i, I don't well know how successful i was but um i gave it a go yeah and it was Oh, man, can you can you give us like mm. the the best of like who who? So like, yeah, I did I many, did twenty eight. Like quite a few. Foolishly, naively, I was like, yeah, I mean, how long does the pandemic last? Mm. Like three weeks. I'll just do one every day for the pandemic, and uh, I I made it twenty eight days, and by then <laughs> my my joints are made of wet tissue paper or something. I get uh, bad joint problems very quickly, and by then my fingers were like, <laughs> you know, your arthritic uncle's yeah, wrists. By the time I'd finished doing it, so I gave myself a. Uh, I, I told myself I'd do 28 days, which is what I ended up doing. Let me have a look at what I covered on Instagram. I think, yeah, that Beat It solo was one of the funnest. Oh, that, that is something. Um, and I did... I bet, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's and it, such a solo. So it, iconic, it was funny because I wasn't even really planning on doing this project. I just... I, I had the thought to myself. I think I, I was listening to, I don't know, some... 80s pop playlist on Spotify or something like that whilst I was doing some work and Beat It came on and it's always been one of those solos that's taken up a fair amount of real estate in my in my imagination because it was one of the first kind of one of the first like crazy guitar solos I ever heard and I remember you know when I when I played guitar when I was younger trying to work out how Eddie Van Halen 
did these kind of things. And it was before there was kind of, you know, the YouTube ecosystem that exists now where you can go and see guitarists do these things. All you had back then was the records and if you're lucky, maybe some some poorly written tabs. And so you'd see these these tabs of of, of of these songs of these solos and you wouldn't even understand the, the techniques being used to make that kind of guitar noise and so that was really fun i just decided i'd always wanted to learn the beat it solo i tried it when i was a teenager and being able to play it but not to you know not not well it it, it would sound you know like a like a funhouse mirror reflection of, of that solo kind mm. of thing and so i thought you know i'll, I'll give i'll give that solo a go now and had so much fun doing it i was like screw it i'm gonna do i'm gonna make a project out of this and and learn a bunch of different solos by guitarists that you know i respected but didn't necessarily have enough time to really dive down deep into their into their style and their playing and it was just such a nice there was no pressure because you feel so much such an enormous amount of pressure when you're writing music and you're creating something and it it's just it's the fun aspect of of music you know just playing playing for the fun of it there's no real criticism there there's no feeling of you know you have to do anything all you got to do is just learn this guitar solo and it was it was a really nice way of approaching the guitar after years of using yeah, it, it as a writing like the work's instrument, kind you know? of been done for you and there's like you said there's no pressure so you just need to just you just embed yourself in the love of the of the track um exactly. I, I i what I know you're you're a bit of a Gary Moore fan, aren't you? I think we've had, we've had that conversation yes. before. Yeah, very well. Yeah, did yeah that was yonks ago. Did you ever did you ever like step into Gary Moore's territory? No, I think because I had spent so long when I was younger listening to him and learning some of his solos, I wanted to kind of use it as a mm. opportunity to do more novel ones that I hadn't really played before. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of. I was taking um, I was taking requests as well, and and people are bastards as well because you you know you're, you're saying like <laughs> oh I'm am do- doing a solo a day, so you've got I mean realistically a couple of hours to learn it and then get it up to a level where you can record it and it sound half decent. Um, mm. So it's it's quite a tall ask, and then uh, sales of Sharon by the Scorpions kept on coming up. People were like learn this solo, and I was like. Yeah, it, it was. Oh man, it was so typical. That that was um that was by far the. That's meant, that's such a that's a random old request. I wouldn't have put yeah. that in with the top hundred. It wasn't alone. a solo that I had ever yeah. actually. I mean, I I don't really. I haven't listened much to the Scorpions outside of Rock You Like a Hurricane, you know. Um, and yeah, listening to that, and I I, I assumed like oh well, it's it's one of those you know late eighties super shred New Malmsteen solos cool whatever then looked into the song and it was recorded in like 1974 or something i had no idea dudes were even playing like that back back then it was it's it's like a absolute yeah. technical marvel of its time uh, yeah i didn't wasn't really aware wasn't familiar with, uh what's his name yuli john roth before that and yeah it was a very very impressive thing so you've gone on your own little little like learning curve yeah. as well that's quite cool can i I'll ask you because when you were you were talking a little bit about like your younger years there, like when I really when did you pick up the guitar? Was it like um because for example my my first memory of guitar was when I was a kid. I went to my uncle's house, and this is how um it's changed. Like I always thought the first ever guitar I saw was a red Fender Strat, 
but it actually turns out it was a, a black strap. But for some reason, my brain has warped it to be a red. But I remember it so right. clearly at my uncle's house in Dulwich, wherever it was. And he was just, and it just stuck in my memory. Like, what the actual fuck is that? I want to be on mm. that. What, like, can you remember, like, your whether you, like, your first memory of a guitar or wanting to play or your first feeling of a guitar? Huh. guitar? I haven't actually. Or was it the cello? No, I, I was so unmusical. You know when um I mean I was from a very unmusical household. My mum my mum had some like records, but I think they'd you know, it would have just been stuff that you buy. She she wasn't someone that listened to music, you know. She wasn't someone where music was a big part of her life and as a result I don't think music was really part of our household. And I remember when you know when you're in primary school and everyone get forced to pick up a recorder or whatever instrument it was i remember i hated i hated uh music lug classes i thought it was worthless oh they were awful yeah and i think that's what i thought learning music was because i didn't have any of this there, there wasn't the cultural impact of music in in my home i never really to me music was that that boring lesson where you daydreamed for for 45 minutes each week i think it, it wasn't until i thinking back i think it must have been probably corn corner for k i got quite into those guys because oh, okay. i would have been you know like 10 11 around that kind of time and i remember one of the cool kids that lived on mm. on the same um terrace as me was really into into corn and, and i think I, I was more listening to corn to be in his good books than anything else but they were very much my <laughs> my kind of gateway drug into heavier stuff and i think quite yeah. quickly after that getting into nirvana and foo fighters and those kind of bands but i don't remember being that there being that because a lot of people talk about that that you know magnetic feeling they feel towards whichever instrument they end up picking up there's like a fascination there with it before you even begin to play it and i don't think there was that for me i think I don't remember I don't remember you know thinking guitar was particularly cool or anything I think I just kind of wanted to learn some Nirvana songs and yeah. just went from there That's that's really cool I love that because it's such um it's 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 the kind of the, not the opposite but it goes against the grain of like the rock and roll dream you know I remember the first time I saw a guitar you know that yeah. kind of stuff um adopting adopting an American accent <laughs> I don't know why um but I just, it's just, it's one of those things where you expect people who are so insanely incredible on the guitar to just be like well yeah you know this is my my direct pathways when I was like you know seven or eight when I first saw a guitar or something I don't know it's just it's so that's quite cool because I think that gives other people actually I don't know strange bit of hope I mean that you were so how how old were you when you did actually you said Nirvana was when you first yeah. started to try and play along I think I, I was about 13 when I picked up the guitar yeah around 13 yeah. I think mm. but it's, it's so like and and was it uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit? I think actually it was... Um, I think at that age, it's whatever whatever album you, you listen to first is the one that makes the impact, right? And for whatever reason, HMV and Exeter didn't have Nevermind in stock, I guess. So I ended up <laughs> buying in Utero. Um, and that was the... So it would have been, you know, Penny Royalty and Rape Me and those kind of songs that 
that were the ones that were really impactful yeah. to me. It, it's a nice way of actually getting into Nirvana because you, you go to the really kind of acerbic, corrosive album, and then after that you get a nice treat in Nevermind, which is full of all the bangers. So you already fall in love with this right. band, and then you get to listen to their best album. It was a, it was a nice way of doing it. Yeah, or you could have done like Bleach or something, like and completely missed in Utero. So it's like, yeah, or like done it the way around. It's kind of funny because you missed the um, Smells Like Teen Spirit and uh, what? Well, sorry, Never Mind. Rather, it's, that's quite interesting actually. I can't remember how I. Well, I got into Nirvana because I held hands with a girl once, and Nirvana was playing in the background, and I just fucking how I fell in love with the band because I fell in love with this right. girl. Um, Do you still but, like them now? Like this uh, uh, assuming you haven't married this girl, did uh, did she break your heart and break the love no, of Nirvana? I, she smashed it in right. two, mate. She smashed the fucking hell out of it. I used to write love letters to her, and I got back from like school, and this um, guy who knew her turned around and like in assembly and said, "Stop writing her letters." Uh, in front of all oh, those guys and it was no. so humiliating but that was quite cool actually because i had a reputation for being um gay uh because i was soft and i wasn't a someone who just talked about porn all the time so actually having someone t- publicly say stop writing letters to a girl actually helped right. me out they're all like hey he's he's not a homosexual which back in the um you know mid 90s was a, was a bad thing to be in school mm. you know which uh but Jesus Christ, that that's gone. That's uh, that's taking a turn, isn't it? But, <laughs> little, but you little that did they know that the letters you were writing to these girls was all about the cutest boys in class. Good thing he missed that detail out. <laughs> I had to tell someone. It just happened to be a girl who loved Nirvana. Um, but yeah, no, it's cool because um, they were a band that I never really pro- like properly got into. Um, they were just above my head. Like I, I had they like been around on the scene when I was in my twenties or something, maybe. But I, they, they were too advanced for me, really. I was still into Status Quo and Led Zeppelin. Right. Like um, what? Like because I mean, you're playing for those that haven't heard. Um, is very much rooted in the blues, and you say you said already, like you know, the music really wasn't that bigger. It wasn't really necessarily on your radar that mm. much until maybe you know, the the corn and, and Nirvana and what have you, Foo Fighters. When did you when did you start like dipping into the blues? Well, I don't think I ever I think by the time I started listening to you know, BB King kind of blues and that, that kind of thing, I'd I'd already fallen into the the very teenage trap of um valuing like speed and shred and that kind of thing. So I never went through mm. a particular blues phase, but I think what it was actually a very happy accident that, that ended up in me getting more into classic rock and the older the classics. Um, I I I was into Corn around the same time that Machine Head um, went into their Corn Rose and Rap phase, and I thought Machine Head doing the Corn Rose and Rap phase were the coolest band when I was about twelve. So I asked my grand to get me Machine Head album, <laughs> and she came home with a uh, Deep Purple's Machine Head, and I was like. Oh no! Yeah. Way. That's amazing. And obviously, you can't just be like, oh. "Man, you stupid bitch," and send it back. So you, you have to you have to put the CD on <laughs> and pretend to like it. So I remember putting on, and it's such a it, it's such an objectively terrible album cover as well. The Machine Head cover, you know, it's just it's like oh, peak like terrible seventies. I, I I have a real appreciation for that now. I've got quite a few Atomic Rooster um, LPs, and obviously, what's the the, the main one that's got that? 
famous painting of the, the beast man eating some meat. But then one of their other <laughs> albums called In Hearing Of is just a, a little old lady trying to hear someone. Like so, so much of, I, I love how yeah. literal and how crap a lot of the 70s um, rock covers were. But yeah, so I, I look, took one look at it and I knew not only was this not Machine Head, but this was almost definitely nothing new metal about it. But, you know, I had to put on the, the CD and pretend to like it to to appease my, my poor nan. And I remember putting it on and thinking, oh, God, what's this? And then slowly over the course of that Christmas dinner, actually thinking Deep Purple was pretty cool. Went back in time and uh, listened to Black Sabbath after that and those kind of bands. And then, um, yeah, I, you just kind of assume that because a band was from the late 60s, or early 70s, that they would sound like the Beatles or something. You know, I, I wasn't aware that there were bands that were, that were heavy and aggressive back then. So, um, yeah, I think probably all my subsequent music career has been a result of my nan buying me the wrong CD. Man, I fucking love that. I can just see like a little nan going up and down, you know, trying to find it alphabetically, not having any luck, then going up to a little, you know, uh, shop assistant and being like, do you machine head uh, I'm, uh, I'm not too sure and him being like oh you know maybe it means deep purple yeah that's yeah, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, changes this, the course of your guitar playing it's like, I fucking love that mm. that is brilliant god imagine if you'd sent like you know you you I don't know some more y- younger more with it perhaps without doing your grand a disservice and they would they would have brought back the right album you know five years you wouldn't have known about it, it would have been exactly, too late exactly Scott. yeah yeah god but but yeah and it's interesting to talk about new metal because we've never never spoken to anybody about new metal on this podcast i was massively into incubus um when I, i've got i've got to hold my hands up when limp biscuit came out um with uh you know was it now now i know why you want to hate me because hate is all the world has ever seen lately i was like i was mega into that yeah. i was like 20 20 years old maybe a bit younger and i was so into that because it was f- kind of fresh mm. like you've got you know the snare snare drums that the, the the sonically like the really massively overproduced yeah, yeah. guitar sounds you know and it was just i mean you were sat there with your heart still broken from letter girl where you've got some you've got aggressive music to indulge in yeah i can absolutely see why you would <laughs> <laughs> letter girl <laughs> Um, I love it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny because I haven't really. It, it's always interesting going back and revisiting things you thought were awesome when you were a kid, when you're a young person with with an adult's perspective. And some sometimes it's like, ah, oh, kid me had good taste, you know. And sometimes it it just yeah, it's it's so underwhelming. I actually went back and listened to um, the early Corn albums, and what they are was so different to what I thought they were and how I remembered them. Like I remember them being one of those Limp Biscuit style, like very overproduced, very processed sounding bands, but actually their first kind of, yeah. their first album or two is really weird. And it's not at all what I, cause you, you have in your mind a mental picture of what new metal is. And that is very much, you know, Fred Durst rapping about beating someone up or something. And, in 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 my brain, I kind of just put corn in that box and kind of forgotten about that whole you know that those formative years of my life when I was eleven years old and thought Freak on the Leash was the best song. And going back and listening to it, it was a lot weirder and a lot artier than I 
I had remembered or given it credit for. I don't think it's something that I would. Um, yeah, it's not like I've gone back and it's not. It's not become part of the regular rotation on my on my Spotify or anything. But I was I was kind of impressed that a band that weird and that arty had become as popular as Corn had. You know. No, no, absolutely. I think I think that goes for for a lot of bands actually of that era. I, I don't know when the the flip that this the switch was flipped and everything suddenly became so like you said overproduced, uh, man, you know, manufactured sound kind of thing. I don't know when when necessarily that happened, but I do I do know that um, it burnt very quickly, mm. and then soon the Strokes were in town and the White Stripes were in town, and I have to say thank fucking God because some of that music was just becoming yeah sickening. yeah. Um, I think Creed destroyed everything, and then Nickelback destroyed everything. But that said, do you know what? When Nickelback's that that hit they had came out, um, oh my god, what's that Nickelback song? Oh my god, it's gone. Um, this is how you remind huh. me of what I. Remember. That was one of the first like, songs I learned on the guitar, actually. There you go, man. Because it's what like four chords. Well, is uh, it? Interestingly, I didn't learn the chords to it. Um, I. This was very much in the. This must have been like when that song came out. I remember very vividly. There was nothing else on, on like rock radio at the time, and I think I'd like yeah, looked yeah. up um, Nickelback guitar tab or whatever, and I had so little idea about what I was doing on the guitar that I just kind of printed off whatever tab I found, and it wasn't the chords. It was actually just a, a tabbed version of the the vocal melody. And I remember thinking, it didn't occur to me, like, it, I, I had so little knowledge of music, I, I didn't even realise that, you know, you would be playing chords. I thought, oh, maybe the bass plays the chords or something. So I went into school, and there was another kid there that, you know, we were kind of, like, learning guitar together. And I was like, yeah, I'll show you, I can play that song. And all I, all I knew was, like, half of the verse melody badly played on guitar. But, yeah, that was... Man, that's so... That's so cool. Like, because, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it is a piece of. I mean, I don't like. I don't. Obviously, I can't stand Nickelback. But I remember when I bought that. I got that album for Christmas. I played it to death, and and then and and I and when that song did come out, I was totally blown away by it. And I think that's the same for a lot of rock dudes. Like where I come from in Guildford, there were just a lot of bands that were just trying to be Nickelback then, from then right. on, and still are, um, and what have you. But yeah, no, it's quite interesting. But if we could we fast forward a bit to like your your I don't know being there for the beginning of Green Lung, like what? How did the band sure. form? What was your role in it? And because it got going pretty fucking quickly, as I recall. Yeah, it was. Um, I think we had a bit of an accelerated. I I think for us, luckily, um, I had already been in one or two bands in that kind of heavy heavy rock underground scene in london at that point i'd I, most of my bands up to that point had been more kind of thrash metal or crossover punk sort of sort of music so i kind of wanted to do something a bit heavier and a bit doomy you know a bit more like proto metal and i'd been in a band called oak for about two years who so are still going and yeah i saw you i saw you in oak my friend did you oh yeah when you yeah, played yeah, a I gig saw you with um when we played a gig rather of Deadbox, right? Yeah, Deadbox Radio, and I was, uh, it was uh, the um, the Crow's Nest or something in God knows, uh, fucking somewhere near 
New Cross. I can't uh-huh. remember. But um, yeah, you, that was that was a, a meaty fucking gig. I, I absolutely loved that. Um, but yeah, sorry, carry on, carry so, on. Sorry. Yeah, I was playing bass in that band. Um, and I've been playing bass for a while. I, I've oh, yeah. taken music quite seriously in my early 20s and ended up going on like a 300-day tour or something ridiculous um, and just really falling out of love with uh, playing music at all. So it had been a couple of years since I'd really touched a guitar and I started playing with Oak, uh, playing bass. And Oak are very much kind of a... I think Green Lung are very kind of fruity and, and melodic, and that's the way I like to write. And I, so I ended up leaving Oak and starting Green Lung, mostly because I wanted to play guitar, but also because I wanted to do something a little bit more accessible and poppy. Um, I think mm. doom metal is one of those genres where, if you know, if you get there's a lot there to listen to, there's a lot there to engage you, but after a couple of years it's difficult to have the patience to listen to like a, a, a you know a 12 minute sleep song and, and that kind of thing and coming from For the sure. yeah definitely. you know the musical the music that had really formed me the stuff i'd really got into you know in those crucial kind of 15 16 17 years had been like thrash metal stuff like bad brains and hardcore punk and that kind of thing and i think absolutely i'd always really valued the just just how well structured those kind of songs are they're they're three minutes they say all they need to say and they're out of there you know you never get like mad ball playing the same riff for for 10 minutes and at the same time i'd always been a huge fan of stuff like um being a huge fan of things like queen and meatloaf and the more and judas priest for example the more camp bombastic side of of you know, early early rock and proto metal, and I I sort of wanted to combine. What if we take took the aesthetics and the kind of vibe of of doom metal, but shortened the songs considerably, considerably, made them a lot more focused, and then added in all those camp ridiculous elements. And I think it was it was one of those things where I remember wanting to do a lot of these things in the demo um, that we did when we first started the band, I think the band had been together for less than a month when we did that demo. Um, cause I'm a very um, impatient man and you know, we all, we all kind of listened back and decided, nah, that's, that's ridiculous. But I think over time we kind of softened to the, the idea of having, you know, six track guitar orchestras and are you still there? Oh, connection lost. <laughs> I'm still here, man. I'm still here. I'm just loving the chat. Oh no, I've gone. So close, so close. Hello? Hey, can you hear me? I think hey, that I was a... just dropped out again. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm still here, dude. Great. Where, where did um? Where did I ramble to? <laughs> you? No, no, it's cool. You were talking. I was loving it. You were talking about um, like six track guitars and shit like that massive like huge sound and just going with it and loving it yeah yeah so i think that's you know we 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 started flirting with being a bit more ostentatious on the ep woodland rights i think we just took it that step further and really embraced that kind of very overt brian may influence we started doing all the you know the not only having big multi-tracked multi-part harmonies in the vocals but 
you know, mm-hmm. mixing them quite loud and things. And um, yeah, I remember yeah. being quite worried that we'd become too fruity. I remember, I remember people, you know, would. I love this word fruity. It's a, it's a good, it, it, yeah, it's a good word for it. I think it kind of, <laughs> it's a bit silly. It's a bit camp. It's everything that metal should be, you know. Like when someone says to me heavy right, metal, yeah. I think of like Dio or like Rob Halford whipping someone, you know. Okay, yeah. It's camp. It's, it's, it's inherently <laughs> camp music, and and that's what I like about it, you know. Um, yeah. And that's what that's we kind of wanted to embrace yeah. on with Green Lung, because doom metal's it's quite a po-faced genre. You get some bands that are quite punny with their names and with the drug references and things, but musically, it's always you know very sludgy and slow and i think as yeah. a man who w- would happily just listen to painkiller on repeat for the rest of my life like i wanted a bit more kind of <laughs> just just more ridiculousness in it and so uh well it's yeah it's just so accessible like i think the first one was it free the witch like that is um that that is so cool like i think that's how a lot of people got got where your entrance your entry level i don't know like where people entered into mm. the band where they came it got into it but like how quick because the thing was for me was being friends with some of the band members and and having gone and seen them over the years and what have you what was immediately striking and not only just green lung but so many mates bands would just form and within an e- a year they'd fall mm. apart or what have you, or they just bullshit you and say, "Oh yeah, we're front of the I don't know front of this online magazine. Check us out." Uh, okay, um, but you guys just actually were fucking doing stuff pretty damn quickly. When when did it start to be like, "Wow, this is working"? Like people are listening. We're selling vinyl like fucking mad. We're selling merch like it was insane. Like when did that first um, noticeably? Happen? I think with the EP we had. We had a hundred copies made on on tape cassette. Um, someone just approached us, being like, "Oh, do you want to put out the release on on tape?" We're like, "Yeah, sure." I remember having these hundred cassettes, seeing them in the rehearsal room, and thinking, like, "Imagine, imagine if like a hundred random people bought these tape cassettes. What a what a feeling that would be." And I mean, they they went so quickly, just off the back of the um, the demo, which is objectively not very good. I mean, you know, I. I if I went back and listened to it now, it definitely wouldn't be something that would that would catch my interest. Um, and then I think, yeah, the the EP did much better than we could have anticipated, and we got quite a few offers to release the album from the kind of labels that at the time I thought was a big deal, and the kind of things that I now realise um, is essentially just guys in their bedroom. But I guess that's that's kind of the beauty of the scene, isn't it? It's such a DIY kind of thing, right? Very reminiscent of like. You know, stories you hear of like Black Flag and Greg Ginn, like hand making all the LPs and that kind of thing. But yeah, when those kind of bigger DIY labels got in touch and really wanted to do stuff with us, I think that was when I was like, oh, okay, so, you know, people do care. And then the the reception to Woodland Rights was, yeah, just absolutely mind blowing. I remember I used to have like daydreams about not not particularly grandiose daydreams, but daydreams about like how how cool would it be to sell out the Black Heart? with you know with your band and yeah. having seen so many bands you know underground bands there and imagine selling that out and i think that was one of those watershed moments when for the release release uh party that that sold out very quickly and then having the the vinyl run sell out quickly one thing I, i've always been a very 
a very pessimistic and and anxiety prone person so i always think any any success that welcome to yeah the right it's a it's a <laughs> terrible way to live yeah and i always assume yeah. that any any success in life is going to be transient so i remember because it, it happens so quickly as well like one one day you're playing to like 20 people half of which are your friends in in the shit back room of a pub <laughs> and then literally your next gig will be 300 strangers that all know the words to your your music and it, it, it happens very quickly or at least it did for us and i remember the first time you go to one of those shows it's really exciting you're like oh this is incredible i remember going to europe for the first time and all, all those shows being like well attended i remember we got off the the ferry went to paris to play this first show first time we had ever played you know outside of the country had no contact with the promoter or anything we had we had no idea how it was going to be and it was it was completely sold out and it was one of those absolutely mind-blowing mind-blowing um experiences where all these french people like how do they even know about us and then you start assuming <laughs> well maybe that maybe it's someone's birthday or something or maybe it's a stag do or maybe the support band's really popular or something but there's no way they could be here to see us and then you take the stage and everyone knows all the songs and you know it becomes very apparent from the merch uh cue that they are there to see you but it's always been one of those things where every gig, it, it, it never gets old because every gig I'm terrified that that's it, you know. All the, I, I get I get scared that everyone that comes to us will be so bad that they'll never come to us again. So everyone will just come to see Green Lung once and then it'll last like six months and then we'll be back to playing to, you know, 20 people in a pub in a, in a garden in Kent or something. But um, yeah, so far it seems to be happening okay. It's I love it, man. There's so much romanticism. I love it because so many of the people I speak to, if they, they have, it's really fucking weird actually because some of them aren't on the Wednesday um, episodes, which is what this is going to be. They're kind of artists that haven't quite reached a plateau yet. Uh, sorry, a level where they're able to really, really sustain um, themselves, but they're getting there. Mm. You guys kind of have, uh, and and then it's and then I go. F even further i'll talk to people who are like in their sort of early 70s or late 60s who have completely made it and done it and they they're they're almost their nostalgia is kind of a little bit um not always but sometimes it's a little bit frayed and a little bit like i'm a bit done talking about that now yeah so it's really cool to get an essence like an idea of of so a real feeling from you of what it's like to 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 go to france to go to paris and 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 be like I, and what you said there was really funny. Like are these guys here for a st uh, for stag, or are they here to for the support band? I've been in bands like that before. You're you're begging like the support band. Oh my god, are they going to bring ten people? Because if they bring ten, we bring five. That'll be fifteen. Oh my god, they're so like a bit of an audience yeah, there, yeah. you know. And that and that's always around the corner, isn't it? So you guys have like completely smashed through that. Um, but yeah, and and then because I. I, I mean, I had that since Woodland Wrights came out, and I uh, Woodland Wright rather, and I was like basically there for the Black Heart one, mm. the release, and then in Manchester, your last gig, and I looked around, we were in fucking Manchester, and there's just people just like singing along with me, and I'm quite an enthusiastic <laughs> singing kind of guy, and I was like, it was so emotional, it was really awesome, you know, because like people are like so dead into it, and rightly so, and. Tom is just such an insanely good front man, you know? I just... It's so cool to just have um, a mate's band do. Yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> it's... it's 
it's funny talking about this because I don't think I've really, you know, n- not not really talked about it before because it's you, you very rarely get a forum to. But I was thinking about it the other day because obviously lockdown gives you a lot of time to pensively get introspective about your life, and um, mm. I think like like all all performers, all musicians, um, all actors, all all anyone, there is an element of um like trying to get validation from whatever you've created right like that daydream i used to have of selling out somewhere like the black heart or oh imagine if 100 people bought these these tape cassettes it, it, there is a sense of validation you want to get from your music inherently otherwise you wouldn't release your music there's guys that are like yeah I just do it for the art it's like well if you're just doing it for the art then your music would have not been released more than on your external hard drive like who, who are you shitting you know um and so there is right, there is exactly. some of some of the incentive, some of the motivation for being creative is that hunger for validation, which I'm, I'm pretty sure is like a universal thing, right? Everyone has that. Dude, don't get me started. Don't get me started on validation and relevance. Like, it's my absolute bugbear, but carry so on. So then when something that's, you know, it's not like we're fucking Motley Crue or something, but, yeah, Green Lung and Woodland Rights <laughs> has done much better than any of us anticipated playing, you know, in a grotty little rehearsal room for fun. Um and the most interesting thing about it is that once you get as humble as its success that Woodland Rice has got, once you get that kind of level of success and, you know, you are selling records, you are selling merch and you are selling tickets, suddenly that, that need for validation kind of disappears a little bit because you suddenly realise that I'm, I'm no happier now than I was before that album was released. I'm, you know, it's exciting to play for to a room full of people but it hasn't really changed my life very much to when i was playing in front of the drummer from the support band and the sound guy at gigs you know and it made me kind of re-examine what it is i enjoy about music and being creative and that kind of thing and i think that it's really changed the sound of the the band on the upcoming album because i think we've we've become a lot more there was always kind of allusions to weird frog 70s prog bands and that kind of thing in in green lung but it was it was quite subtle little nods to it we've become a lot more overt with that and i've done a lot more things that i don't think i would have done if i was still chasing that kind of validation in in so far as i was and it's yeah it's just interesting because it kind of completely changes your relationship with being creative instead of trying to validate like a hypothetical stranger in your mind you're you're just doing whatever you think is cool and whatever you want to achieve and suddenly writing music becomes this entirely self-serving thing where it's about what do i value as a song like choices that i might have made to not not pander to an audience as explicitly as pandering to an audience but things that i would have done to maybe do a bit of like um I don't know, things to make it just a little bit more accessible. Um, not necessarily accessible. Yeah. Accessible is the wrong word, because I think the, the, the songs we've written for this. Enjoyment. You want people to enjoy it, yeah. man. Like, like fundamentally. Like, and and that's, what I, that's what I get so much from your music. I, when, when I first, you know, when whoever was talking to me about Green Lung, and I didn't know who the fuck they were talking about. Like, I, I was like, Wiseman was talking to me about, oh, we've got this new band. And when I was like, okay, mate, you know, great. Excited, because I love you, man. Great. Um but then when I went to see you, I was like, oh my, I think this is, doesn't matter whether you're into ABBA, doesn't matter whether you're into fucking, like, I don't know, Vampire Weekend or whatever. This is just a great sound. This is so accessible and it's so much fun. 
and it's like well y- y- yeah this makes sense like why doesn't everyone yeah do yeah <laughs> and i think yeah that's exactly it in terms of the accessibility and the how how melodic and hooky it is so much of that has been mm. lost from aggressive music and i i think that's why i spend i don't really spend much time listening to particularly heavy music anymore because what i feel really what what really pleases my ear is a, a well-written melody and a well you know put together well arranged put together song and that's something that you know is becoming rarer and rarer as music becomes more aggressive and more deliberately inaccessible in in heavier genres of music mm. so many times when we go to metal shows and things i struggle to understand what it is that people are in i mean i was into like death metal and stuff when i was a teenager so i get it to some extent it's the it's how visceral that music is but i sometimes struggle to understand with a band like sun for example what what is it that people what what is it that resonates with people um because for me it's it's always very much about like this this year i guess has been a very stevie wonder year for me i became obsessed with the kind of classic era stevie wonder albums listened to almost nothing else for about awesome. three months and that you know i'd always i'd always always listen to them but there's a moment when they click and you suddenly realize that wow this guy was something really really special and Damn in every single one of his songs there's yeah. just something that gives you a lump in your throat or makes your hair stand on end just just something about what he does in almost every song it's it's un, it's insane what he did for those couple of years and I, I struggle to understand what it is in a lot of, you know, really, really inaccessible music that people enjoy. Like when you listen to a band like Primitive Man, as competent as they are, what what is it about that music that, that resonates with people? How do people emotionally respond to it? And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of puzzling to me. I, I probably sound like one of those old men. It's like this new music's just screaming, but it's it's just... Mm, no, I think I've always been like that though, man. Like I just like what I've just... It's, it, music to me has always got to be accessible. Mm. I've, I've I never ever got that. When I've used to go to like rock clubs, um, you know, when it, when new metals around, they used to play you know a mixture of music. But whenever you used to get really heavy, like stupid, I was just like, but this is all the same. Like that, and then this they they play like four different bands, but they will all be making the same racket. But because it it was good, it was it, it's it's so visceral and insanely loud and 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 offensive right and there's nothing to it no melody or anything the kids are like yeah i'm loving this because it sounds dangerous and, right, yeah. and it's cool like i mean that i guess that's all it kind of boils Maybe. down to you know i mean yeah i mean there's bands that like Mushuga, for example are, are one of those bands that i i do genuinely enjoy and uh, but it's because there is something there to Mushuga. it's uh okay, a, i think it's a yiddish word that means crazy um uh-huh uh and that yeah there are swedish swedish i don't know what kind of metal avant-garde they're from the 90s but they're still going now still going strong and they kind of invented that mm-hmm. um very weird polymeter gent kind of music it's it's very interesting it's it everything's written in like yeah nine eight kind of time and bizarre bizarre right. like simultaneous different meters happening it's 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 in it's insane but it's it's one of those kind of things where you have something to to anchor onto. It, even if it's quite inaccessible, yeah. there's still anchor points. There's still moments that catch your ear and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's strange. I was yeah. I was actually because we're gearing up right now to go into the studio, and 
Oh, I can't wait. Oh my yes, God. it's exciting times. And I was, I was obviously you need, you need to start thinking about comps and, you know, what kind of guitar sounds you're enjoying at the moment that we can use for, for references of what we're aiming for. And I was looking through what I've been listening to and it's, I, I genuinely, all I listen to is like twee pop. Like I've, I've just gone to a band <laughs> so, called Spell and Sebastian. Dude, have you heard Lemon Twigs? The Lemon Twigs. No. I think you will absolutely love no. them. Write it down so you 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 okay. remember to look them up. They're these pair of like um, Italian American eighteen year olds who are both like Broadway stars when they were children, and they've just written. It, it sounds like something you'd hear on the old Grey Whistle Test. You know, it's like very much like Rod Stewart feathered hair style kind of campy glam rock yeah but these songs are so okay. well written and it, it's that's the kind of genre that the kind of like british glam of the 70s isn't isn't something i ever really isn't something i ever really enjoyed but this band uh yeah just the the songwriting and what we're talking about with in terms of like just writing music that hooks you in that gives you an emotional response yeah. to the actual music itself as opposed to the production or the sound they're they're, they're masters at that and it's all, it's orchestration of of solos as well, isn't it? And just and and like there's a there's a gift in that. There's not a gift. There's like um an art. There's an art form um to it. Obviously, there's a fucking art form to it. But it's like it's always so. Oh, is that going to work? Isn't it? It's like I'm pretty sure some of the best bands are just like fuck it. I'm going to play what I want. Like Francis Rossi never sat down and went like I'm going to write a solo because all his solos are very melodic. They're they're really great right. guitar solos. That's a status quo guy, like, right? Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, I can remember like Roll Over, Lay Down has got an amazing guitar solo to it, great riff as well. And they're so simplistic. They're mm. so simple. And that, that, that's that's kind of like what I dig. But also like, you know, Van Halen and what have you, massively into a bit of that. And I I guess I'm, I think what I am, what I really want to ask is like, I just want to get fanboy on you and just like talk to you about the new sure. album. Like what, what we, what, are we, are, is it what can we expect is it is it a de- deviation from woodland rights or is it is it more to towards that sound or what what is it i there? think it's so hard to get perspective on it isn't it because you're so close to it but um yeah, that's true yeah I, and it's not finished yet so yeah yeah exactly i mean sound. i think the the key things i wanted to achieve going into it was i wanted to pare down the sound even more not make it uh simpler necessarily but just there's still moments in in woodland rights where if i was writing that album now i would have cut bits in half cut songs entirely and that kind of thing there's still there's still wasted space mm. and things that i myself as a as a listener and my own taste i wouldn't really enjoy and i think it was one of those cases of mm. oh well we better do a slow ponderous bit because that's what people like in this in this genre you know and now i'm i'm just like well if if you write for a hypothetical fan you're screwed because you're that that person doesn't exist so all all you can really do all you can really trust is that your taste will appeal to more people than just you and so just write songs for yourself and so what happened was it's a lot more bombastic than woodland rights there's a lot more kind of big moments um and i think we really embraced the kind of uh like musical virtuosity a lot more like uh john is a very very good organ player very good keys player 
And whereas on Woodland Rights, I mean, I'd written all the organ parts and we just got John in as an afterthought, you know. So he wasn't really involved in the writing of Woodland Rights. Um, so that's that's a, the most immediate change will be how much more prominent keyboards are and how much more prominent things like keyboard solos and keyboard, well, organ moments are, big Hammond organs and that kind of thing. Sweet. Um, in terms of the actual songwriting, it's very much more hook focused and we've tried to make it as accessible as possible while still just still kicking ass, you know, and just making sure that every oh, man. taking that kind of that bad brains mentality I mentioned. Do you know the bad brains, that DC punk band? Yeah. 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 From yeah. the early 80s. Yeah, of course. Jeez. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's that kind of mentality where does this bit in the song work? If it works, at what point does that outstay as welcome? And so I think everything's become a lot more focused. Um, at least I hope so. And there's a lot more var- variation on the album. I think, you know, there's a lot more quiet bits. It's a, it's a lot more of a dynamic album. Um, it uses a lot of keys, different keys as in, um, whereas Woodland Rights was very much, we're just in C minor through the whole thing. C, C, C minor. Yeah. And so there's a lot more, yeah, it's just there's a lot more variance in it. I think, I think it's just being written with the confidence of knowing that there's people there that will listen to it, and knowing that, sort of, if no one likes it, I'm still going to like the album I wrote, which is quite a liberating thing, right? You just once you start to do that, I think you really start That's to right. do something a bit, a bit more interesting and better. Guitar-wise, it's gone. Well, you've just it's gone ludicrous. Yeah. Um, because I know on Woodland Rights, I was still very much, you know, as someone that, you know, really likes people like Van Halen and Judas Priest and Dio and that kind of thing. We had intentionally dialed back the guitar histrionics on Greenlung because it's not, we wanted it to kind of have that kind of more subdued 70s vibe. And we've just completely removed the histrionics limiter for this album. So the, the guitars have got <laughs> ludicrous. Um. Yeah, a lot more. Just oh, yeah, yeah. Ri- ridiculous. Um, like intentionally stupid and um. Yeah, just 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 yeah, it's become a lot more a lot more silly, in a in a fun kind of musical way. Well, more fun, right? Yeah, fun. Like, because people need some fucking fun right now, and like, I think if people have they've got into you that on step of the ladder with woodlands wooden rights, and they're gonna. I think I feel personally I'm definitely willing and really excited for the next offering but just just quickly when do you think when do you realistically in terms of like the schedule of um pre post production and and then getting it out when do you think what we're we looking at do you reckon we're going to be doing it in September so quite a long time away yeah that's I think yeah. when yeah it, it's it's quite a strange experience kind of being with a label and having like an A and R person having some sort of structure to how you do things. Cause before now it's just been, you do the album and then it gets pressed and you sell it, I guess, whereas there's an actual kind of, yeah, there's an actual timeline and focus. So yeah, we'll be recording lockdown permitting. I mean, we should be okay. Um, end of this month into December and then yeah, released yeah. in September. So we're going to be sit. I'm, I'm going to hate oh, these songs. Wow. And we've already had the songs written yeah. for a long time as well. So it's going to be, yeah. Oh, my God. You know when you hear from... But you're going to have, 
Well, yeah. I mean, sorry, you're gonna have a long, long run up then to September. That's gonna be like nine months of pre, of just like what press and just just trying to. I mean, praying to God that there's some kind of live music like mm-hmm. events to 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 back it up with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's gonna be a long, a long wait, and it's it's always quite scary when you've made. I call it kind of like. I call it Schrodinger's riff. You know Schrodinger's cat where it's simultaneously alive and dead until it is checked on. Schrodinger's right. riff is right, a yeah. riff is simultaneously shite and good until someone listens to it, you know? And there's, there's no like <laughs> yeah. there's no objectivity when you've written it yourself. So I I don't know if I've written something, you know, that's that's transcended woodland rights that everyone's going to really dig or if I've written something that's going to alienate the fans we do have and that everyone else will think is is crap, you know, it's it's impossible to know. So it's going to be a it's going to be a scary 9 months to waiting to see how it's received as well. God, I'm going to beg you for a fucking couple of listens, yeah. man. Some, some some but then but then I, I say that it's like if it's 9 months, then maybe I just want to wait, you know, because then it's just so much more exciting when you do it all in one go. Like, I just binged the fuck out of Woodland Rights. Oh, my God. I didn't stop listening to it for months. It's ridiculous. And it's been it's been so long since I've been into a rock band, you know, so long. So it's quite cool because it, it opened my eyes to other bands, which is really cool. Oh, but um, we'll probably have to end it there. Um, it's been a healthy chat. We've been fucked by technology a couple of times, but that's, you know, that's that's what happens uh, <laughs> these days. That's what I'm used to. But um, just really quickly, this this deodorant thing, man. I'm loving it, by the way, because I I wear it to work. So I'm a gardener, and it does the job. I work out lots. It does the job, and it, it doesn't. You do, you don't notice it's there, and it smells fucking oh, amazing. Incredible. So like I I love it. Oh, that's that's it. very heartening to hear that it's um standing up to an active man's pits. <laughs> <laughs> how how how's it going when is it yeah it's, now, it's going it? we've actually had to switch off all the adverts because we were struggling to to keep up with the the demand it's it's Smart. one of those things where it's wow. it's kind of like the woodland rights of deodorant we oh, kind of no. hope that it would do quite well <laughs> and it's 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 got to the point where we're yeah having we're struggling to to meet demand i, I made a in retrospect well no it wasn't an unwise decision i had Obviously, there's there's not as much money coming in from music. There's not as much money coming in from everywhere with the recession. And I got offered a contract doing the kind of boring IT stuff I do, and I'd sworn never to go back to. And it would be starting right. the same week we were launching Scrubber. And I thought, well, if um, Scrubber the deodorant doesn't do well, then I'll be I'll be in a, a pretty vulnerable position. So I better take this contract, right? And then yeah. To, took this contract so i'm working you know normal office hours again in quite a demanding role and every every spare minute i'm frantically cooking up these uh deodorants and sending them out and then every moment where i'm not making the deodorants i'm uh frantically practicing guitar for the recording so i've are you making them at home are they in a in a not not like in like a in like a little lab thing yeah yeah we we do it all wow get the raw ingredients ourselves and, and do it all ourselves. I think that's one of the reasons we managed to make it quite affordable because the, the the kind of germ of the idea came because my my wife's always been quite into zero-waste products. We, we both have been, but um, a lot of the other eco-deodorants are, are 
pretty terrible and very expensive. They um they're tiny, they're ineffectual, and they cost you know ten pounds or more for like sixty milliliters and that kind of thing. And we thought, surely, looking at the component parts and the cardboard tube obviously anything that's cardboard and not plastic is going to be more expensive because it's not as widely manufactured but in terms of the actual ingredients and everything we couldn't see any justification for how it would cost so much so we looked into actually making it ourselves and worked out you can it's it's not the it's not making it that's costly it's the packaging so we thought why don't we do a much bigger deodorant give people more of it and do it for you know half the price that everyone else is doing it for, which you'd still make a healthy profit on, um, just a more reasonable markup. And yeah, it seems to really have resonated with people. But we wouldn't have been able to. I don't think we could have priced it this way if we got it if we outsourced the manufacture. So I think okay. the general strategy is we make it ourselves um, in our little space until demand outstrips what we can do. Once demand outstrips what mm. we can do you know reasonably then that means we'll be in a position where we can hire someone or a couple of people to actually start helping us manufacture them so yeah hopefully we'll be i think I, that's so gonna happen it's, it's yeah gonna happen. yeah i've been absolutely blown away with the response because it's again it's like like the schrodinger's riff thing we we're talking about you have obviously i tested it on yeah. you know we had i think we did about 100 um tests and signed up random people for for kind of helping us beta test it, I guess you'd say. Um, so we were confident yeah. it was good. We knew it was better than the other stuff out there, but it's never going to compete with a like a anti-perspirant, you know, that's loaded of aluminium because it's a natural product. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's been very heartening. We've yeah, we've sold much more than we anticipated, and so far we've only had one one complaint out of about six hundred customers. So that's that's good, right? That's a <laughs> Mate, it's it's such a it's it's been a it's been a fucked up year but a good year for yeah. you. I like I just uh, I love it because uh, honestly and just just before we do go, um, I do I, I'm 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 turning to you like a number one fan, mate, because I lo- I lo- I want to believe in a product. And when you said, "Oh, I'm working on this thing at the moment, really busy," I didn't know what the fuck you were gonna say. And then you said you like, "Oh, deodorant." I was like, okay, cool. And then I ordered one online. Literally came the next day. And it's awesome um, artwork, but it's just it's it's just it for me save the fucking planet. I literally just watched David Attenborough's right. "We're All Gonna Die If We Don't Do Shit" um, documentary. <laughs> That's what it's called, and I was like, <laughs> "This is great, this is great." And it's like you said, "Oh, I don't have to like fucking put up twelve quid for it or something or fifteen quid on some like you know." market in in Herne hill mm-hmm. or what have you in london and and you know it's like it, that's the honestly the, the save the world stuff save the planet stuff always goes seems to go hand in hand with like freaking 15 pound yeah it's coffee, it, it, it's you know? like there's a mad. there's a dickhead tax on it i don't know i don't understand where it's come right. from because surely the people making these products would be more ethically sound than bigger companies but I mean, I, I can I can honestly tell you, hand on heart, that the people selling these kind of products, whether it's, whether it's a natural deodorant or, you know, a vegan whatever, there's a markup on it because they know that the main audience for this is middle class people who are, you know, if you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, 
they were quite quite rightly criticized for being quite uh, exclusionary being a very middle class and white middle white exactly. middle class massive and it, it's yeah. bad because not only is it you know naked profiteering but it's also it's excluding young people young people who in my experience are the most passionate kind of um eco warriors out there the young, you know the people that are 18 years old now you know, I find that whole generation of people very, very driven, very inspirational. And a lot of them can't afford to put their money where their mouth is. So we've got this whole generation of people who yeah. are very motivated to buy these kind of products, ethical products, but can't necessarily afford to spend £15 on uh, a lip balm. Or So I just wanted to kind of, yeah. we're starting with deodorant. We're about to launch a dry shampoo, hopefully next month or Oh, yeah, and then kind of just branch out from there. We we want to do stuff like deodorant and dry shampoo where there aren't already kind of affordable and decent options, you know. So we, I don't think we're going to go into things like yeah, like soap or shampoo bars. We we might, but just there's not as much of a drive because that exists. You can buy that. You can buy that reasonably. Whereas yeah. we want to kind of work out where that dickhead tax is being levied at at its biggest, <laughs> and work out ways of. Yeah, if you're sensible about your supply chain, you can do things ethically, and that's what we we're kind of yeah. trying to achieve. Man, this is so cool. We're gonna to have to have a chat about this on its own in like six months or something to see where it is because it is it's super exciting and it's it's good to talk um, business and um, uh, what do you call it um, entrepreneurism because it's uh, it's 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 needed big time at the moment. Yeah. But. For a guy like me who never really gave a fucking shit about his body until about I met Laura, my wife, about five years ago. And now I'm into Corez. But the problem is with Corez, it's great, but it's plastic. It's like it's it's housed in plastic. And, and, and it really bothers me. It doesn't just bother me. It really bothers me and it makes me anxious because I love it. But it's 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 not great for the environment, even if it says recycled on it. I'm like, dude, I don't want to risk it anymore I'm, I'm fed up with risking it with my local like um authorities whether they're recycling stuff are they generally recycling yeah. or are they saying yeah. they're recycling and uh, is a product definitely from re recycled plastic or isn't it you know it's like oh it's too dodgy i actually but, um, worked for anyway I've, I've, i don't know if, if you if you want time for one more ridiculous scott story i used to work as a as a yeah, as a yeah, bin man yeah. for a recycling plant yeah so I'm my really. job was actually sorting yeah. the the recycling in the back of a moving van and yeah as you can imagine if you're paying like seven i was like 16 17 if you're paying like teenagers borderline illegal wages to do a horrible job that job is not going to get done very well and yeah. yeah unless they've radically changed the way that recycling is is done uh, there would be so much stuff that was just if if you couldn't do it in the unrealistic time frames you were given just boom straight off into the into yeah. the tip so even when things are recyclable if they're not biodegradable they they can still be quite problematic yeah definitely yeah no that's that's exactly how i feel too mate but th look dude thanks so much for your time let's yeah, stay in touch I'll, I'll keep whatsapping you your face and you can whatsapp my face and stuff and i'm probably will start bullying you for um a little listen to <laughs> new album tracks but you can always tell me to well off, mate because that is i'll ask right. i'll ask the boys considering you're you you know all the boys i'm sure they'll be happy maybe you could be our um our you always need someone to you know listen to prospective mixes before the album goes live so yeah, maybe you definitely. can be our guinea pig 
Oh, that wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, that would be good. I'm getting a semi <laughs> right now, so that would be great. <laughs> My penis is telling me that's good. a good idea. Well, I'll, I'll go now and let you deal with that <laughs> arising <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, well. Right, so, man. Bye. Bye.